0: let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 6. And today we are returning to another important portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And really the entire sermon is very, very important. It's no wonder that generations of scholars and Bible students have uh, Described this as the most important sermon that was ever preached. Jesus taught important theological concepts. I mean, concepts that would appeal to the most astute in the academic world. But he also preached in such a way that things that he said were so practical that a person of any type of education could find hope and comfort in his words. He would confound the doctors of the law, the scribes, and the Pharisees. He he left them with no arguments. They had no answers. And yet, as he spoke, he also talked to the common man. And they could very clearly understand what Jesus was saying. And those that were in attendance on the day that he preached this particular sermon were mostly Galileans. They were people that were raised far away from centers of theological influence that were in Jerusalem at the temple. And so what Jesus would do, he would teach, and he would use simple yet very profound illustrations He would talk about issues of everyday life. And Jesus' ability to speak about everyday concerns is most vividly displayed in the part of the sermon that we're reading today and have been studying for the last couple of weeks. Here he speaks about a condition that's common to everyone who is in the room today, common, of course, to those people at that time. And the subject is worry, anxiety. How are we going to live? How are we going to take care of ourselves? What are we going to do when the economy fails? And the great comfort that we take from reading this portion of Scripture is that we don't need to be worried about any of it. God has it all handled. All that he really wants us to do is just trust him, uh, believe what he said, take his promises to heart, and then we'll, we'll see that anxiety, that worry that we have in our lives taken away. And I'd like for us to notice again today... How Jesus answers these questions. We talked about it last week. Uh, today, more on the subject of worry, and next week we come back to it again. But if you'd stand with me, please, and as we read God's word, look in Matthew chapter six. Start reading. We're starting to read in verse number 25. Therefore, I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink; nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these." Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things." But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, For the moral shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence today. And we are thankful again that you are a God who sees us, who takes care of us, who provides for us. And as your children, we can claim your promises And we ask you, Lord, just to open our hearts to realize that it's true, that we might have the faith to believe everything that you've told us. Take our anxieties, our worries away as we think more about what you have called us in this world to do rather than our own pleasures and desires and things that we uh, seek to satisfy ourselves with. Blessing this message today, I ask, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The problem is worry, and we are a society of worry warts, but that's really not much different than 50 generations that have lived before us all the way back to the time of Jesus. There is a level that we have over uh, anxiety over material goods, really relative to the amount that you have, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Uh, This affects the poorest of the poor as well as it does the richest of the rich. Most of those who were on that hillside on Galilee the day that Jesus was preaching this message were poor. And tomorrow's food and tomorrow's shelter, tomorrow's clothing were really a problem for them. There there were no government programs to help them out if things had gone wrong. Uh, there were no funds to feed the poor. There were no charitable organizations that would take care of the indigent. And so a bad year of rain, a heavily taxing foreign government they lived under the Romans if a plague of locusts or a plague of disease should come then they really had no answer for that and so it was really a legitimate concern if there was ever people that lived that had a true concern over what tomorrow would bring it would be these people and so we would think that if we had the answer to all of these questions the very kinds of things that they were worried about that worry would be eliminated what, what, what happens if we do have programs for the poor? And what if we are able to uh, channel water for hundreds of miles to water our crops? And what if there is tax relief and we do have those to help us? Well, having all of that really does not stop anxiety because we're mostly concerned about maintaining a certain level. What we need is not actually enough for us but rather we're always seeking what we want and we're always concerned about what we can hold on to and whether we're able to maintain a lifestyle that we think will make us happy. And yet the rich as they get richer never get rid of their anxiety and then certainly the poor don't fare any better. So Jesus understands our heart about this. And what he seeks to do through this part of the sermon is to change our thinking and to reorient our focus to put it on things that are that are true, where true concern should lie. Uh, before we start the subject again today, I, I want to make it very clear to you that what we say in this message and what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount holds no hope for a person who is not a believer in Christ. What Jesus says... Uh, The promises that he makes are not for Buddhists. They're not for Muslims or Hindus. And not even for any of those who claim false Christianity. Now, you may not like that, and that may not sit well with you. But the previous parts of the sermon have shown, and things we've discussed already, is that you have to have a certain spirituality to expect God's provision. You have to have a relationship with God. You have to know what it means, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, that you should be pure in heart, that you should be cleansed from your sins in the blood of Christ. And your thinking cannot be changed and realigned along the uh, things that we're going to talk about today unless your heart is right with God. And so don't think that you're able to apply anything that I would say today if you're not a Christian. And I'm not really trying to be harsh when I say that, and of course neither is God, because the best that could ever happen to anyone is that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. God is not interested that you should have peace and joy and contentment in your life and that you would have an eternal home in heaven without him. I mean, that would defeat his whole purpose. It's his whole point. He's not interested in making you satisfied in a life that's outside of him. To do so would be to defeat his very purpose, that all of our lives are to bring glory to him. So let's go on and let's see how Jesus solves the problem of worry now that's the second message on the subject and we have another next week but in the first part of the message last week we covered two areas that are very important for us the first one is the preparation of life jesus says take no thought and that is an expression that simply means don't worry and before we understand what jesus means sometimes we have to look at what jesus doesn't mean Is Jesus teaching that we can throw caution to the wind and we can be carefree and unconcerned? We really don't have to care about our jobs. We don't need to worry about the mortgage payments. We don't have to worry about feeding our children or buying their clothes. No, Jesus is not saying that. In fact, the Bible very clearly teaches that we are to work. We are to be a very industrious people. The Scripture says that a man that doesn't work should not eat. And it also says that if you don't provide for your family... You're worse than a heathen. And so, God is not going to put food on your table. He's not going to provide a place for you to live while you sit around and do nothing. And neither does the scripture teach that we shouldn't save, it doesn't say that you shouldn't invest. Those are very godly principles. Preparation for life is important. He doesn't teach that you shouldn't prepare, but what he does teach is that you shouldn't be so preoccupied with the things of this life, all these different things that are going on, that it begins to consume your life. Now he begins then by speaking, and this is the second point of your outline, the composition of life. He says, take no thought, verse 25, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? And so he's telling us here, is everything that God has designed you for, is it all wrapped up in the material things of this world? Was your body made to eat? Or is your body a place that was made to hang clothes? Or did God put you into an eternal purpose? And did he send Christ to die for you that he would let you starve to death or freeze to death? And surely Jesus is trying to point out that your life is more important to him than that. And so if we're lost within ourselves thinking that the end of God's plans and purposes that we would be that we would have stuff and that we would be happy and that we would skip and hop and jump through life and consume all of God's resources upon ourselves as an end in themselves, then I would say, yes, you need to be always concerned about the finest house that you can live in. Be concerned about what kind of car that you drive and the kind of clothes that you wear. Be concerned whether you're wearing designer jeans or another, another type. But no real child of God ought to think that way because God has not put you here for you. God has put you here for him. He sent Christ to redeem you from your sins so that you might be a glorious trophy of God's marvelous grace. And of course, if that's true, then God's not going to let you rot. His design for your life would be to make you someone to glorify him. Now, Jesus beautifully illustrates this by birds and flowers. And he says the birds are not concerned about their meals because God graciously provides for them. And the flowers don't have to worry about the soil they, that they're growing in. They don't move to another place in order to find good soil. And they don't move in order that the rain might come. But God puts the nutrients in the soil and he sends the rain when it's needed. And so the argument goes, as Jesus presents here, that if God will take care of the lesser insignificant parts of his creation, then how much more is he going to be concerned about this crowning achievement of his creation, which is man. He created man with reason and with aptitude. He created him with ability to praise and glorify him. And so if birds and flowers don't worry and they're taken care of, then why in heaven's name should we be worried? And see, when our focus is right, and when we consider God's eternal purpose for the creation, then there is no rational reason why we wouldn't expect that every single person that God has called by his marvelous grace, save their souls, that every single person that has been called by God would not ultimately fulfill the purpose for which God has put him upon the earth. And so if you are content with God's purpose, then you will be content with God's provision. You'll accept what God has put into your life. Well, we're going to move on now to uh, some new territory and talk a little bit more about the arguments that Jesus gives about why we should not be worry warts. Thirdly, from the text, I think that we can see the exhortation about life. The exhortation is the appeal that Jesus makes concerning the difference between his general providence for his creatures and the specific care that he has for those who are in relationship with him. And he exhorts us to to think very carefully about it. Think about your relationship with God. Now that relationship is seen in verse number 26. He says, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And do you see the expression of relationship there? Let me help you out with it a little. Go back up to verse number 9. You should be very, very familiar with this because of the time we spent on the Lord's Prayer. But in verse number 9 of Matthew 6, it says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And do you remember how we spent so much time speaking about the relationship of prayer? Who is able to pray? Who is able, who is permitted to bow his head and to ask from God? And the answer to that question is those who know him as Father. By faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into a relationship with God that's different from the relationship that we have simply with God as our creator. And so when we trust Christ, we become a part of the family of God. And just as uh, Christ is, or God is Christ's father, so God is our father. And the argument that Jesus makes in verse 26 is that if Jesus takes care, or God takes care of the creature, if he takes care of a bird, then how much more will he take care of his child, one who is in a relationship with him? Animals don't have a special relationship with God. I mean, none other than they're simply his creatures. And I don't want to get into that question again about uh, whether cats and dogs go to heaven. Um, cats have no chance, and dogs only slightly better, but still no chance. And those, those who know God know that God will take care of them. Now, I want to ask Brian, uh, sitting here on the front row. You know, Brian's a good family man, a good father. And if I were to ask him, Brian, is there ever a time when your children walk into your office and they say, Dad, you know something, I'm very, very concerned about whether we're going to have any supper tonight. And I don't know about tomorrow. I mean, I, I love to sleep in my bed, but I'm not quite sure if we're going to have a place to live tomorrow. Your your kids ever come in and ask those questions? Well, of course they don't ask those questions. They have a dad who loves them, a dad who cares for them, and they know dad's going to take care of all my needs. So they never ask questions, what are we going to eat or where are we going to live? And if we look at this as Jesus presents presents it, how much bigger is God? How much more faithful is God? How much more powerful and resourceful is God? And so if God, who is our earthly father, will care for his... Or if our earthly fathers, rather, would care for us, then how much more will God, who is our heavenly father... Now, that's why he puts the inclusion of father in verse number 26. It's not accidental. The poorest of children have every bit as much hope in their fathers as the richest of children. They don't worry because material things are not their concern. Now, let me show you, then, how Jesus drives this point home even further... He says, your heavenly Father takes care of the birds. And then he goes on to verse number 27 and he frames a different argument, another argument. It's another exhortation why we carefully consider why you leave everything in God's hands. Verse 27 says, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? Now I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of confusion about what this means. Are you able to add a cubit to your stature? What does that mean? Well, a cubit is a Bible measurement, usually uh, considered to be about 18 inches. So what is Jesus saying? He says, w- which of you, by taking thought, by worrying about it, could a- add 18 inches to your height? Well, that would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? That he would ask such a thing. You know, I- I'm, a, I'm what, six 6'2"? Uh, if I added 18 inches to my height, I'd be 7 feet 8 inches tall. Why would I want to be 7 feet 8 inches tall? 30 years younger, maybe, I would want to be. Uh, playing the NBA or something and make millions of dollars. Now Corey, back here, I think if he added 18 inches to his height, he would probably be about 8 feet 1 inches tall, somewhere in that neighborhood. Who wants to be 8 feet 8 inches, 8 feet 1 inches tall? I mean, I don't even like people over 6 feet. I don't know why anybody would want to be that tall. But Jesus is not speaking about height. You don't like him either, do you, Jorge? <laughs> Jesus is not speaking about height here. He's obviously speaking about the span of your life. How many of you by constantly worrying about it could add any time at all to your life? Now there's a great story about this in the Old Testament along the very same lines. I want you to turn to your Bibles to Isaiah chapter thirty eight. And this is the story of Hezekiah. He he was one of the few good kings of Judah. And in this story, Hezekiah was sick and he was about to die. And so God sent Isaiah the prophet to speak to him and told him to get his house in order. Time's growing short. And he says, you are going to die. And so in Isaiah chapter 38, beginning in verse number 1, it says, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order For thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember me now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city, and this shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of degrees, which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. Now, you want to know how great God's power is? Verse number 8 says he caused the sun to go backwards by 10 degrees. That's about 40 minutes. Now, that was the sign that God gave Hezekiah that his word was true. But I think what's much more important for Hezekiah here is that God was able to add 15 years to his life. Now, Hezekiah had no ability at all to add to his own life. No matter how much worrying he would do, he can't add time to his life. And this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. You are not going to add years to your life by worrying. Now, you, you, you think about this, and you may not see the connection right away, but what is it that people are worrying about? Well, they are worrying about their lives. How are we going to stay on this earth longer? And isn't that what we're really worried about? We're worried about, are we going to die? And so the next meal that we eat... The next meal always represents our attempt to stay alive. But your life is in God's hands. And if you worry about where you're going to get your, your next meal, is that worry going to help you? Can you add to your life when life now and always has been in God's hands? You see, the encouraging exhortation here is you can't do anything with your life. Only God controls your life. So why worry about it? Now notice something else in this story of Hezekiah's life. Do you notice here the basis for Hezekiah's appeal when he prayed? Did he say, well, you know something, Lord? I I don't really like your commandments. I've been a pretty wicked fellow all of my life. I don't respect you at all. And um, I just uh, don't give a flip about you or your word. Please add some time to my life. Well... We know that wouldn't work. His life couldn't be characterized that way. If it was, he couldn't expect anything from God. So listen to what he does say. Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. So if you want long life, you don't worry about it. You start putting into practice what God says and he guarantees length of days. Proverbs says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add unto thee. And then in the ninth chapter of Proverbs, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. For by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. And so when Hezekiah prayed, you realize what he's doing? He's calling up God's promises. He's going back to what Solomon had written before him in the Proverbs. And he claimed this promise of God. And it says, God, remember how I've walked in your ways. Now the point is not to worry about anything. Instead, you go down to verse number 33 in our text in Matthew 6. And it says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. And so Hezekiah was a man who honored God, who kept his commandments, who loved the Lord and he sought righteousness, and he had something added to him. God added years to his life. Now you see, if you have the single eye that it speaks about in Matthew 6:22, that your focus is on God instead of your goods, then God will give you what you need. And if you ever insist on worrying about anything, the thing that you need to worry about is not your food and your clothes. Worry about the righteousness of your life. Are you someone who has pursued God with a perfect heart? Because Scripture says, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Now, fourthly then, as we go on, we find in this text the expectation of life. Verse number 30. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Jesus is making arguments about worry, and now he brings in another important factor. He says, your worry is tied to your faith. And he says, people that worry about their food and their clothing are people of little faith. Now, what does he mean by that? What is little faith? I mean, how do you actually measure faith? And how much faith is really necessary? Well, these people had faith, but evidently not much faith. So how does that relate to a Christian? Well, I would say first that... A Christian does have faith. You can't become a child of God without faith. Uh, Galatians 3.26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's the only way you will be a child of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in in John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So faith, belief, that's the instrument by which we receive the grace of God and salvation. Now, if you have that much faith, if you have enough faith to believe that you are a sinner on your way to hell, and that Jesus died to pay for your sins, and you trust him and him alone, then you have enough faith to be saved. Well, now then, what does he mean that some have a little faith? What, what is the measurement of faith? Well, actually, what I think that Jesus is teaching here is that saving faith is minimal faith. I don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's insignificant faith. It's probably the most significant faith you can ever have. But according to the Word of God, saving faith is a minimal faith. And I've just described to you what minimum faith is to be saved. And here is where successful, contented Christian lives begin to break down. And that's because Christians stay at the minimum faith level. And that's where they have trusted God for the eternal salvation of their souls, but they're hesitant about trusting God for the temporal salvation of their lives. Now think about how Jesus, using logic here, when he's making the, the arguments from the lesser to the greater and vice versa, if Christ is able to take care of the eternal salvation of your soul, then what makes you think that he would withdraw from the temporal salvation of your life? See, what Jesus is trying to do is to move people from minimal faith, that faith which it takes to be saved, into increasing faith to where you put every detail of your life into God's hands. And that's what we mean when we talk about growing Christians. When, when you talk about growing faith, that's actually what it is. You have enough faith to be saved. You've trusted Christ to save you from your sins. Growing faith is when you begin to trust him for everything that's in your life. Every circumstance of life, everything that goes on, you put it into God's hand. And that's what it means when the Scripture talks about moving from the baby stage of Christianity, such as we find in the book of 1 Corinthians, and move into adulthood. That's that increasing faith. That's greater proportion of faith. It's when we trust God implicitly in all situations. So we find then that the teaching here is that worry is a function of faith. And the less of your faith, the more that you'll worry. And the greater your faith, and the less you'll worry. And so worry and doubt are just another way of describing lack of faith. Now, I think it's really odd how we get mixed up about that. But the expectation of life would be if God takes care of the eternal soul, then what is there? Is there anything that's outside the purview of God in your everyday life that God wouldn't be concerned about? I was talking to um diane albright a few weeks ago and she made an interesting comment when she was going out the door and she was making a comment about some teaching that she had received in another church and uh she said the pastor of the church was preaching and he said she said we were told invite god into your situation and i said well I don't know about that. I've got news for you. God is already on top of every situation. God's already there. And what you have to do is to let go of the control that you think you have, that you don't have, and acknowledge that God's already there. Acknowledge he's there. You see, the expectation of your life in Christ is that faith is not supposed to be confined only to that initial moment when you trusted Christ as Savior. Don't stop there and expect that the God who cares for the eternal welfare of the soul would have you to doubt that he could control everything that you need, everything that you go through. And truth be told, many times God has put us into circumstances to test our faith, to increase our faith. And when you start to worry and you get anxious about things, you know what it means? It means that you're failing God's test. You must trust God. Now, let me give you three identifiers of little faith that lead to worry. We'll finish with these, and then we'll come back next week and tie up everything with the final verses of the chapter. But see if these statements identify your faith. First, little faith is failure to master circumstances. Now, the picture could not be clear that life for these people was a bully. Life was pushing them around. They were victims of their circumstances. They lived for this. They lived to get food and shelter. And their pursuit of Jesus often was tied to this very thing because Jesus would sometimes feed them. They were following them around to get meals. You know, it's sort of like the Pavlovian response. Whenever they heard the voice of Jesus, they began to salivate. I mean, they thought food's coming. And they couldn't see beyond. That, that material thing, that, that physical thing, and it left them powerless. And so faith did not extend to the place that they could say with Peter that the trial of faith is more precious than gold. Scripture says that tribulation increases. It gives us greater enduring faith. And so if the problem is food, greater faith solves the problem. Worry doesn't solve it. I mean, never once did worry ever put food on the table. But let's go back to Hebrews that we were reading just a moment ago. And we didn't, we didn't read this far. But listen to Hebrews eleven thirty three down to 35. It says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again. And you're worried about food? Listen to what they did through faith. Faith caused these people to take charge of their circumstances. They didn't bend and break beneath them. Little faith is when you're being pushed around, when you're being mastered by circumstances. Number two is failure to think. Little faith is failure to think. Jesus says, use your powers of observation. Use your noggin a little bit. Just look at the birds. You see how they're taken care of? Look at flowers. You see what's going on with them? Use your head a little bit, people. You know, I like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones put this. Um, He talks about people that are constantly thinking in the wrong way. And he says, if you lie awake at night for hours, I can tell you what you've been doing. You've been going around in circles. You, you just go over the same old miserable details about some person or something. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought. A failure to think. That means something else is controlling your thought and governing it. And it leads to that wretched, unhappy state called worry. That doesn't apply to anybody here, does it? <laughs> We've never spent any nights tossing and turning and worrying about things, have we? Worrying about things at night only leads to one more worry. When am I going to get enough sleep? So little faith keeps you awake at night. Greater faith lets you sleep like a baby. You remember the psalm that David wrote when his son Absalom was trying to kill him? David was being chased off the throne. His life was in danger and he he made a comment. He said, many there be that rise up against me. And you know what David said? He said, I stayed awake all night worrying about that. I I didn't know what to do. No, David didn't say that. Here's what he did say. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I laid me down and slept. Great faith does not keep you awake at night. Number three... It's failure to believe the Bible. Little faith is failure to believe the Bible. Peter said, we've been given exceeding great and precious promises. This is what I encourage you to do when you start to worry about things. Start flipping through the pages of the Bible. Start looking back through stories that are in the Bible. Look, Look at what's happened to the people of God. When did God ever let his people down? When did God ever fail to deliver his people when they cried out to him? From that widow that fed Elijah because she believed the word of God to that smelly old prophet Jonah when he's in the belly of the whale. When he cried out to God, God delivered him. And so God is always there to fulfill every word of what he says that he will do. Gary uh, sings a song that says, My Redeemer is faithful and true. Every word he has said he will do. Every morning his mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. And so if you have doubts, pick up the Bible. Read God's promises and then look back on your own life. Look back on your own life. And see, when was there one time when God failed you? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think probably the best promise written in the Bible is when he said about himself, God said, I am the Lord, I change not. His promises are immutable because he is immutable. And let me say one more thing, and this is the best part, I think, and and I can't leave this out. You know me too well to know I'm not going to leave this out. The Bible says that your names were written down before the foundation of the world. This means that God started everything with you in his mind. There was an eternal purpose, and God saw that, and God put into action His full intention to bring about His purpose for your life. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary to India, said in 1792: "Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God." Now, if you're a person of doubt and worry, then you are a person of little expectation, and I doubt that you're ever going to do anything for God at all. And Jesus wants, you to, wants to change that. You see, Jesus came to give you salvation. He wants you to trust him for salvation. And he wants you to go beyond that. He wants you to trust him for your life. God already has it handled. So we don't need to worry. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We are prone to worry. We have so many things that bother us. We let things get in the way of our service to you. Our eyes are cloudy. We can't see who you are. Lord, remove all that from us. Help us to understand that you are the great God who sees and cares for everything that goes on in our lives. And help us, Lord, to know that you have a purpose for our lives, and we want to live within that purpose, not our own purpose. I pray, first of all, Lord, for those who are here today who don't know you as Savior. These words that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount are not for people who don't know you. Jesus would never have said, I'll give you all of these things, you can expect these things, and then you can ignore me. We have to have a relationship, and that relationship only comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, and the anxiety, these cares, all the worries that they have, they don't know how to solve them. There is only one way and that's to look to you as Savior. And then, Lord, for those Christians who are here that are consumed with worries and doubt, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to release this control that they don't actually have and let you control every aspect of their lives, depend on you to do that. And, Lord, that's what makes for happy, contented Christian lives. Bless us now as we sing. speak to someone's heart today. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.